This is an EM Pulse Heartbeat with your host, Sarah Medeiros. Welcome back to EM Pulse. We are finally coming to the end of this strange and stressful year. You know, my seven-year-old told me the other day that he really just wants Santa to make the coronavirus go away. And I couldn't agree more, buddy. But though we're still seeing a steady rise in COVID cases and deaths, and the worst may be yet to come, there is hope in the form of a vaccine. The first mRNA vaccine made by Pfizer was recently approved by the FDA, and others are expected to be approved in the near future. Supplies are still limited, so the first round of vaccinations will go to frontline healthcare workers, including emergency physicians and other providers. But many people still have questions about the vaccine. So earlier this week, I sat down with infectious disease specialist Dr. Dean Blumberg. He's professor in chief of pediatric infectious diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital and also co-hosts the podcast Kids Considered. Historically, vaccines take years or even decades to develop. And I think before this, the fastest on record was four to five years. So how were we able to create this vaccine so rapidly? Yeah, so normally it takes about seven to 10 years to develop a vaccine. One of the ones that was developed in record time was the Ebola vaccine. During the 2014 West African outbreak of Ebola, there was a worldwide effort to develop a vaccine, and the FDA approved the first um, Ebola vaccine in 2019. So everybody was congratulating themselves on what a great job that we got this vaccine done in only five years. And now we've got the COVID vaccines coming online in less than 12 months. And that just goes to show what you can do if you throw unlimited money and unlimited time at it. And if everybody drops everything, so if the vaccine manufacturers and scientists and public health experts and epidemiologists and the FDA, if everybody like drops everything else and focuses on development of COVID vaccines, you know, this can get done in a, in a really timely manner. So you don't think they had to cut any corners to get here? Well, no, I don't think they cut any corners. They did things um, extra rapidly. Everybody dropped everything. Like I said, there were things that were done ahead of time in anticipation of things working out. So the phase one studies, the initial studies in a small number of people were rapidly then converted into the phase two studies and then phase two slash three. So they were done concurrently um, with the larger populations. And then the vaccine manufacturers really bet on good outcomes so that they were able to manufacture the vaccine doses before vaccine approval, which is really unprecedented because why would you do that? Why would you take that risk? But they did that. They've all done that. Yeah, it's really impressive. Let's talk a little bit about how the vaccines work. So let's talk about the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines first. How do those work in general terms? So those are messenger RNA vaccines, and they what they do is you give somebody the messenger RNA, and then the RNA ends up entering our own cells in the cytoplasm, and then harnesses really the transcription process of our own cells to produce the coronavirus spike protein. That's what the messenger RNA encodes for. Then after that spike protein is produced, then the immune cells then react to that spike protein and produce antibody and cell-mediated immune responses. So will your cells just keep making 
spike protein forever after you get the vaccine? <laughs> no, that that doesn't happen. What happens is that it's transcribed and then it's rapidly degraded. And so there is no mRNA that's left over in the cells. You're not constantly producing it. So what's different about the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine? So that uses a different platform. Instead of the messenger RNA, what that uses is an adenovirus vector. It's a non-replicating adenovirus, meaning that it just introduces the spike protein into the cells, and then it doesn't replicate. It's just one cycle. And so it's a very similar kind of a plug-and-play platform. These have been developed over the years in anticipation of a pandemic, so that when we really needed to rapidly produce a vaccine, it could just be plugged right in to the delivery platform, and then manufacture can be really rapidly scaled up much faster than the traditional protein-based vaccines. So do you feel like one of these methods is you know, better than the other or has certain advantages? There are theoretical reasons to argue about each of the vaccines, but in the end, it's looking like they're all going to be about the same. Um, the preliminary data suggests that they're all going to have approximately the same amount of protection, and they're probably going to have very similar adverse effect profiles. Well, let's talk about the data. So the current rounds of vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna only have months of data. How does that change our thoughts on this vaccine? Is it safe? And what is the data showing us in terms of safety and effectiveness? Yeah, so what the FDA did before these vaccine trials entered the phase three studies is they specified what they wanted and what they would consider safe. And so they wanted large numbers, and they also wanted at least two months of follow-up for safety data. Two months of follow-up provides a cushion. Most adverse effects that you would expect from these vaccines would occur in a few days, so the first week after immunization. But if you think of the immune response, the optimal immune response is probably going to peak at around two to four weeks following immunization. And if there was any sort of cross-reaction, any kind of autoimmunity, it might start occurring around then. So what they did is they wanted at least two months of follow-up in the vast majority of study participants just to make sure that there wasn't any kind of a cross-reaction, et cetera. So I think that's adequate follow-up. The patients, the study subjects in these studies will continue to be followed up. So we will get even longer-term follow-up. But the preliminary follow-up with these thousands of patients that have been studied is very reassuring. And obviously, people's question is about long-term effects, you know, five, 10 years out, which we have no way of knowing. Is there any reason to expect that you might see some long-term consequences with any of these? It's hard for me to, to even think of a theoretical reason why you would. I mean, basically, the messenger RNA ends up being transcribed into a protein. The messenger RNA itself is rapidly degraded. We have an immune response to that protein, and so it's similar to other immunizations. And if you don't get immunized, we're all susceptible to SARS-CoV-2. And so we'd be exposed to that protein in the wild, in the natural way, and we would have a similar immune response to it. What do you think about the approval process for the vaccines? Do you think it was reliable? Do you think there was political pressure that contaminated it in any way? I've read the news reports, and it, it does sound like there was some political pressure, and that's very disappointing because that, you know, that really calls into question people's trust of the whole process. 
That being said, all the data is transparent. And so the FDA um, has published that. It's available for anybody to look at online. I've looked at it. And if you look at the data, it's solid. And there's really no reason to question the approval. But I, I wish that that didn't happen. I wish the reports of the political pressure, I wish we didn't have that. I think that confuses the issue. Well, I am definitely on board to get the vaccine and I'm signed up to get it as soon as it's available. So how effective is that first dose? How long until I will develop some immunity and, you know, and then I'll get that second dose? Um, How long until I'm sort of up to full immunity and how long should I expect that to last? I think the exciting part with the Pfizer vaccine, the data that's been presented, it looks like you start getting protection against disease around 12 days after you've been immunized. That's where the lines diverge in terms of the number of cases that are seen in the placebo versus the vaccine group. And then the lines diverge even further after that. So you do get relatively fast protection. It's hard to know how long that immunity lasts from that first dose because the study subjects received two doses. The first dose likely results in a robust, very good immune response. The second dose is likely important for two reasons. One is to have an even stronger immune response. And the second reason is for a more durable immune response. The immune response appear to be similar to what patients with severe COVID have, and those appear to be more long-lasting. Patients who have mild disease tend to have their immune responses waning after just a few months. So the question is, are they really going to be protected from getting mild disease? So it, it does look comparable. Of course, the follow-up has been very short, so that will we'll continue to follow that. So we don't know yet whether we're going to need a booster after a year, after five years, after 10 years. And we also don't know if the virus is going to mutate. Viruses mutate all the time. This one has mutated. So far, it's been very small mutations that we don't think are important in terms of um, the vaccine providing protection. But over time, that might change. So we may need to develop new vaccines, just like we have different vaccines against influenza every year. Sure. So the vaccine initially is going to be available to this tier one group, which includes our healthcare workers like ourselves. And the CDC did a recent survey shared at a public meeting of their advisory committee on November 23rd. And they found that 63% of healthcare workers polled in recent months said that they would get a COVID-19 vaccine. How do you respond to those providers who are hesitant to get it? I think it's appropriate to be hesitant when you haven't seen the data. So I think now that the data is out there, I would encourage everybody who's hesitant or unsure, take a look at it. You know, if you've got questions about it, any particular questions, it's very well presented. I mean, they they were able to parse down into a lot of subcategories of people since the study was so large. I think the uh, safety study had about 43,000 subjects and the efficacy part, they had at least 36,000 subjects that were included in that. So you can you can parse it out into small subgroups, too, if you have particular questions. So I would just encourage people to look at the data, see what the CDC has been saying, um, and then see what the professional societies have been saying, too, in their recommendations. Is there anyone who should be concerned or who should not get the vaccine? You know, similar to every vaccine, anybody who's had a a prior severe, serious allergic reaction to the vaccine or any component of the vaccine should not receive that vaccine. 
we heard the reports from the UK when the vaccine was rolled out. There were two patients who had severe allergies who did have serious reactions to the vaccine. I don't know what their allergies were to, but both of these patients were carrying EpiPens, so clearly more more severe than somebody just saying, I'm, you know, get hay fever or something like that. So that ends up being something that would be considered a precaution to immunization and something that people should discuss with their healthcare providers. What about groups who were excluded from the trial, like pregnant women or people with autoimmune conditions? So pregnant women were excluded from the trial, but some women became pregnant during the trial. It's just a small number, just 23 women. And there was no clear distinction in terms of the outcomes of those pregnancies. So ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and the CDC both say that it's safe for pregnant women to receive the vaccine, that they should discuss it with their healthcare provider and think about the risks of anything during pregnancy, the lack of information that we have during pregnancy. But the risk of getting COVID during pregnancy is not trivial. And we know that pregnant women with COVID have a five times increased risk of hospitalization compared to pregnant women who don't have COVID. So I think if there's a a risk of infection, it's something that should be considered. And same with immunocompromised individuals. We don't have a lot of data on immunocompromised individuals, but the CDC has guidance stating that um, immunocompromised individuals are at higher risk for severe disease and they may not respond to the vaccine because they're immunocompromised, but they should seriously consider getting immunized. So I have a colleague who's a type 1 diabetic who was concerned because autoimmune conditions were excluded. What do you recommend for people in that situation? Well, people with diabetes are at higher risk for severe COVID also compared to people who don't have diabetes. But you can imagine why these vaccine studies do make those exclusions initially is if you had a bunch of patients with diabetes and somebody is immunized and their diabetes gets worse or they have asthma and their asthma gets worse, you know, there's so many things that could cause that. You don't know if it was the vaccine causing that or if that would have happened anyway. And so it just makes it much more difficult to look at the data cleanly um, the more comorbidities you have. That being said, if you look at the database from the Pfizer vaccine study, they had several patients with many comorbidities, and they they looked at the vaccine in all ages, including people over 65. They had more than uh, more than 20% of the population was 65 years of age or older. So they did parse out the data based on that. What kind of side effects should people expect? And should people plan not to work for a day or two after getting the vaccine? Well, you could do that, but, you know, hope for the best, right? (laughs) So we know that like tetanus or influenza vaccines can give you like a sore arm for a day or two, maybe low-grade fever. So it's somewhere between those vaccines and getting the Shingrix vaccine. So I know you're too young to have received the Shingrix vaccine, but for those of us who are older than 60, it has a lot of side effects. It really causes people to sometimes miss work for a day. It really does cause a very sore arm and often does cause a fever. So um, it's somewhere in between those two. But the serious side effects, which would mean change in your activities, limitations of your activities, likely happens in only a few percent of patients. So I would plan on working the next day, but pre-prepared that you might not feel as energetic as normal. 
Sure, that makes sense. So at UC Davis, we are rolling out our vaccinations this week. When can we expect that to sort of change practice? Do we still need to wear PPE after the vaccine? How long is it going to take before things go back to some sort of you know normalcy? So the vaccine doesn't work 100% of the time. And we also know that we're going to need to achieve more immunity within the community. So we're going to need herd immunity before we can stop masking and social distancing. So I would expect our PPE and regular precautions that those are going to remain in place for the foreseeable future. It's also very difficult to predict, you know, when these vaccines come out, it takes a while to really get confident in the protection and that we feel comfortable in terms of changing our isolation practices. So, you know, the same occurs with varicella vaccine and isolation precautions for varicella with Tdap vaccines and isolation precautions for pertussis. So I would expect there to be really no change in our isolation and PPE recommendations for the foreseeable future. Do we have any idea when this will be available to the public and when everybody will actually be vaccinated and will get to that herd immunity state? I've heard estimates that it'll be mid-2021, which would be really fast. One of the issues, of course, we're familiar with with the Pfizer vaccine is it has the ultra-cold temperature storage requirements, so the minus 70 degrees storage requirements for the medium to long term. So really, the, the distribution of that vaccine is going to be limited to places that have that capacity, which are generally going to be larger hospitals and health departments. Um, I think the next vaccine that the FDA will be discussing is going to be the Moderna vaccine. That one has um, less stringent storage requirements. And that's the one that I think we'll see that maybe will, will be available in pharmacies, for example. And then the other vaccine that in the West we're going to probably see is going to be the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. That one has very standard storage requirements. That's the one that we're going to see that it's going to be able to be administered in doctors' offices, as well as worldwide when many of these countries we know, less developed countries, have less available cold chain. And so that one's probably going to have the biggest impact worldwide because of the storage requirements. Well, this is all what we've been waiting for for months. So it feels like we're finally getting somewhere and we're getting close. So it's great news. Anything else you think we should know? It is really great news. I mean, it's it's like the beginning of the end that we can really see that the end is in sight now that we're starting to immunize. You know, I'd expect there to be some glitches. There might be some glitches with distribution. I'm sure there's going to be um, some of the temperature issues will probably fail. So some of the vaccine is going to have to be discarded. I'm sure there'll be some administration errors. I hate to say it, but there always are. And then there'll be continued monitoring for adverse effects. So there'll be more to learn. And then we, we discussed some of the special populations. So be interesting to find out about you know how well the vaccine works in pregnancy and in subpopulations such as um, those who are immune suppressed, those with different comorbidities, and then the pediatric studies are just getting started. So we need children to be immune also if we're going to achieve widespread herd immunity. After speaking with Dean. Any reservations I may have had about the vaccine went out the window. You know, a recent UK study found that healthcare workers have an eight times higher risk of getting COVID compared to non-essential workers. 
Personally, I would take the minimal risks of the vaccine over the unknown and potentially severe consequences of COVID-19 infection. And with our EDs and hospitals filling up the way they are right now, the threat of contracting and spreading the virus has become very real. So I got my vaccine this morning, and I am happy to report that the only side effect I've had so far is some mild arm soreness. No big deal. I hope this episode helped answer some of your questions, and I hope you all have access to one of the vaccines very soon. Share your thoughts and questions about the vaccines with us on social media at Ian Pulse Podcast. And please share this episode with your friends and colleagues who may have concerns about getting vaccinated. A big thank you to all of you out there on the front lines right now, and especially to our colleagues here who have worked so hard to bring the Pfizer vaccine to UC Davis. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for perfecting the art of remote recording. Stay safe out there, everyone. 